While you're standing, would you pray with me and intercede with me? Father, today we join our hearts together on this 10th anniversary of a national tragedy. And I understand that time is supposed to heal our pain. But I also know there are family members who on this anniversary relive the loss of their loved ones every single year. Today must be even more bittersweet. For the thousands of families who lost fathers and husbands, sons or daughters and mothers, wives, who are grieving today and the wounds are reopened, I ask you, Father, to allow a peace that is beyond human comprehension to grip their souls. I pray today, Father, for the civil servants, the firefighter, the police officers, the first responders who responded that day, many who lost their lives, but those who still suffer the consequences of serving on that day. I pray for them. I pray you'll guard their hearts. I pray that you will come along beside them, that you'll bring healing to their bodies. Father, I ask you for the civil servants that are in this room today. I looked across as we were singing a moment ago and my eyes came across police officers and firefighters and first responders that make this church their home. And every day when they walk out the door, their husbands or their wives whisper a prayer when they leave that they come back that day. Today, I pray over them. I garner this church to join with me to pray a protective force over them. Today, God, we ask you to give your angels charge over them, that you will protect them and that you will keep them and that you will bless them and turn your countenance their direction that there will be a shield of protection around their lives that father you would allow they would feel your comfort and your peace to go with them for the military personnel that serve us for the families that have lost loved ones in the line of duty to those that are anxious today because they have children or relatives that are serving there now they have parents that are serving there now today we pray your protection over them whether they're a navy seal serving afghanistan a a police officer in Saxe, Texas, or a firefighter in Richardson. Today, God, we lay them at your feet and we pray they would sense honor in this room today. That they would sense the love of this church in this room today. That they would feel the prayer of the church behind them and a deep sense of gratitude from all of our hearts. And we again ask you to bring strength to our volunteer and, and full-time firefighters from the state of Texas who are exhausted from battling wildfire. And we beg of you, send us rain Lord we need rain give strength and resources today in our hour of need and father I believe today it is possible that as we stop from political places to houses of worship all over the United States of America and commemorate the 10th anniversary of 9-11 I believe that while some motives may be commemoration and celebratory some motives may be political Today, I pray that underneath all of that celebration, the ember of the fire of revival that is what made America great would be stirred in our hearts. That in every celebration, in every church service, in every commemoration today, that there would be a reawakening in our hearts of our desperate need for God. There is no Congress. There is no president. There is no political action committee. There is no economy. There is no plan. There is no strategy that can save our nation. It is only you. Father and in repentance today but also in giving honor to your sovereign power we look to you we turn to you and we say to you you are our only hope you are our only answer and we pray that in these commemorations you would breathe with the Holy Spirit on the embers of yesterday's revival and you would stir again what you have done in this nation we turn our 
hearts towards you. And Jesus, we give you thanks and praise because we believe we can trust you with what we have prayed. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for your heart of prayer and worship today. And I thank you for continuing to pray for this country and those that serve us. And I believe would be a very much so an encouragement to those that serve in the Bastrop area if God so leads you to assist in that way. Believe me, we're going to stay out of their way and let them do their job and only do what we can do without being in their way. But we're going to be a blessing to those families there if we can. I remember exactly where I was, as most of you do, in September 2001, 9-11. I had gone with some friends to Colorado. We were going to pack in to the Continental Divide. I had a horse that I was riding and one that I had as a pack horse. And a two-day horseback journey to the Continental Divide at 13,000 feet, sleeping in tents in 15-degree weather at night. Um, I can remember the only outside noise that I heard on that trip was airplanes flying over. So on September the 11th, with no cell signal, no way to converse with anybody to know what was going on, all we knew is that planes stopped flying over. So late that night before we got, went to bed eating our MREs, our military, you know, prepackaged food that we had packed up the mountain, uh, we began to talk about what time we, the, the planes quit flying over. And a, a wrangler rode through, a wrangler from that area of Colorado had ridden up the mountain two days journey to check on some property. He rode through our camp. He saw the fire and rode through our camp and wanted us to be aware. Uh, he had left cell reception nearly eight hours before. And that was when the attack had happened. Um, he got the word from his wife as he was going out of cell reception that New York had been attacked and that there were maybe 50,000 people dead because that was some of the preliminary report. So that's the news that we received. New York had been attacked and possibly 50,000 people dead. I laid on a ground on a sleeping bag in a tent that night, not able to sleep. We were only halfway finished with our trip, but knew we would be breaking camp before dawn, headed off the mountain. It would be a two-day horseback ride and then a long drive back from Colorado to Arkansas. I was sleepless that night as I wondered what it was going to be like. Was America in World War III? Would we be in a nuclear war by the time I came down off of that mountain? Would I get my wife and my kids and, and ride back, back to the mountain to find safety? What about my church? The church that I pastored was in a community where the second largest stockpile of chemical weapons in the United States of America was housed at an arsenal in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. All of World War II's leftover mustard gas and nerve agent was stored on that in, 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 in a compound in that arsenal. So it became the second highest rated terrorist target in the United States of America. What was, what was going through the minds of my congregation? I rode off of that mountain. We actually made what took two days to get there. We made it off in one. We rode straight through. I got off of the horse, jumped in a van, and drove 17 hours straight back to our church without sleep to make a prayer meeting because a lot of believers were afraid, just like me. A lot of believers were anxious, just like me. A lot of believers were trying to muster up courage to trust God, just like me. It was in that moment I watched America let go of what divided her and grabbed onto what unite her. At least temporarily, we came together. We cried out to God. I remember what I was doing then. And I, I remember today as I stopped back and started reliving some of those emotions during the song and the video. And as I relived them over the last few days knowing today was the 10th anniversary of 9-11. It fit perfectly, really unintentionally with the sermon series that 
I started to preach last week just one sermon, and it kind of bled over into today. A sermon series that has now become gloriously dark, because that's exactly what it is. We live in a world that is dark. It's obvious what we're celebrating today, the commemoration of 9-11, lets us know we live in a very dark, unstable, and uncertain world. But according to what we read in Scripture, it can be called gloriously dark because it is into a world like this. A dark world, a morally bankrupt world, a degenerate world, a world that is unstable in every way, politically, economically, and just uncertainty. It is in a world just like this that the Lord Jesus is going to return back to. So as the world gets darker... Our hope and anticipation of his return grows. So it is dark, but it is gloriously dark. I read last week from Titus chapter 2, and I want to begin there this morning. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse number 11. Paul, the older preacher, is writing to the younger preacher, and he's talking about that glorious darkness. He is telling Titus of a day, his day, it is morally bankrupt, and it is unstable in every way. And he is telling Titus, Because the day that you live in is dark and perverse and unstable. You need to let your hope be anchored in the blessed hope of the Lord's return. And let your anticipation grow. As the darkness around you is darker, let your anticipation and hope of the coming of the Lord grow within you. And let that hope keep you from adjusting to the world. Keep you from adjusting to the darkness. He says... In light of the coming of the Lord, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own eager To do what is good. Last week I talked about a purifying hope, an encouraging hope, and a comforting hope. A purifying hope. How would your life change if you knew that Jesus was coming back at 6 o'clock tonight? Would you need to make a trip to an altar or spend some time in prayer? Are there phone calls that need to be made? Would you make adjustments into the way you're currently managing your life if you knew that the Son of God had an appointment to be here at 6 o'clock tonight? The reality is most of us would make adjustments to our lives. And the reality is he may not wait till 6 o'clock tonight because we live with the anticipation of his return at any moment, at any hour of any day. But when you live with that expectancy, First John tells us, John writes that we are to live so that when he appears we are unashamed. His coming, the expectancy of his coming is a purifying agent in our life. The blessed hope is a purifying hope. It's also an encouraging hope. Colossians 1.17 says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, no matter how dark it gets, you have to understand that God is sovereign. He is in control. He is not on vacation. He is not taking a nap. He is not sweating. He is not nervous about the instability in our world. I don't have to go build a bunker in the backwoods somewhere and hang on and hope I make it. I can trust him because in him all things hold together. No matter how dark it is, no matter how desperate it might be, he is not taken by surprise and he will forever be sovereignly in control. And the fact of his return is an encouraging hope for me. It is also a comforting hope. Three, we live in a world of heartache. 
Our neighbors are losing their homes, 1,400 of them. The pastor of our sister church in Bastrop, his house was burned to the ground. 11 people that attend that church, it's a small church, 11 people lost their homes in that fire. There is heartache. And it would be easy to shut the book on this life, your story or their story, and say this life is full of heartache and that's all there is. But we cannot put a period where God intends to put a comma and there is no need to shut the book when that's not the end of the story. Because the end of the story is the king is coming and he has promised that when he returns he's going to set the record straight and he's going to correct injustices and he's going to restore what the canker worm and the locusts have eaten up and destroyed. It's not the end of the story. Don't shut the book. The king is coming. It is a purifying hope and encouraging hope. It is also a comforting hope. But today let us examine these quickly. It is number four, a unifying hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May He strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with His holy ones. Notice He says, in light of the Lord's return, the fact that He is coming back, may your love increase And from the overflow of that love of your heart, may it grow for each other in light of the Lord's return. He's saying, your love for the church ought to grow. Your love for your brothers and sisters ought to grow. In light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, your love for the community of faith ought to grow more and more as your as your anticipation of the Lord's return. Our love for each other ought to grow stronger as the coming of the Lord draws nearer. If you truly love Jesus, you're going to love what he loves. And he loves the church. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. And if the church is his bride, he is in love with the church. It doesn't make sense if God is in love with the church. If Jesus is in love with the church, it doesn't make sense for somebody who claims to be a Christ follower to say something like this. And believe me, I've heard it. But they'll say, I'm a Christian But I don't go to church. I don't need to go to church. And then a lot of times you will hear them throw in some statement like, I listen to so-and-so on the radio or I listen to so-and-so on the television and that's where I get my spiritual nourishment. Believe me, I believe there are radio ministries and television ministries and there are parachurch ministries outside the local church that have brought spiritual grace and comfort and strength and growth to the life of a lot of people who go to church. But those ministries were never intended to replace the ministry and the value of the local church. They were never intended to upseek the place of the local church. Matter of fact, if you love what Jesus loves, or you love him, you're going to love what he loves. And he's in love with the local church. I can remember, believe me, I, I was a, uh, an evangelist and ran a non-profit parachurch ministry for 10 years. I so believed in the local church and that the tithe belonged to the local church. And there was nothing more important in the local church that when somebody would send a check to our ministry and market tithe, I would send it back to them because I wasn't the local church. And I would say to them, give them some verses, and I would say to them, I believe tithe belongs to your local church. When you need somebody, I'm not going to be there. If you want to send an offering to our ministry, you can do that. But please send your tithe to your local church. The tithe belongs to the storehouse. I believe, listen, I understand the value of those ministries. So I'm not on those today. I'm not berating those today. But in the process, much Much of the place of the local church has lost its position. There are some things that are going to happen to you in your life. You're going to be hatched, you're going to be matched, and you're going to be dispatched in your life. And we like to throw things. When people are hatched, we throw water. When people are matched, we throw rice. And when people are dispatched, we throw dirt. 
And nobody's going to be around from your radio ministry or television ministry when you're born to throw the water, when you're matched to throw the rice, or when you're dispatched to throw the dirt. When your life is in a crisis, it's going to be your small group or the small group leader or the people that are in relationship with you in the local church. It's going to be that body of believers you walk with every day that are going to walk with you through life. There should be a love in your heart for the local church. If it's not, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church, it's something else. I'll hear them say, well... You know, I know most people are supposed to go to church, but uh, me and God kind of have our own thing worked out. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Now, my response to that is, really? God has said all of these things in His Word, has all of these expectations for His followers, His disciples, those that call themselves Christians, and all of those things apply to everyone else but you? You used to, we're so used to teachers and parents and bosses in an imperfect world having favorites and only applying part of the rules, part of the time to part of the people. So we assume God is going to apply part of the rules to us and we're going to work it out and have our own thing going. But God is just. He loves us all the same. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't bend the rules or look the other direction for some people. He writes down his expectations and we're all supposed to live by those expectations. And he said through the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. In light of the return of the Lord, our heart for the church, our desire to be in his house, our love for his people ought to grow all the more in the light of his returning. We should not uh, forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And then you still hear others say, I'm not going to church with hypocrites. Or the last time I tried to go to church, I got hurt. So I'm not going back again. And I will be the first to admit to you, church is messy because people are messy. And anywhere there are two people breathing air and alive, there is going to be friction in a relationship because human relationships are messy. And the church is no exception to that reality. When dirt, which is us, and divinity, which is God, come together, there is going to be dust. There you have the church, dust. When dirt and divinity collide, human relationships are messy. And people try to find the perfect church. It does not exist. If you find it, however, do not join it. Because the day you join it, it will no longer be perfect any longer. Church is messy. Relationships are messy. The amazing thing is, in the New Testament... When you had friction in a local church, people didn't leave that church and go to another one. There was only one church in Corinth. There was only one church in Thessalonica. That's the reason church discipline worked in the New Testament is because when there was a need to enact church discipline or there was a need to work out differences in relationships, there weren't any other options and people had to grow instead of run. And when I asked some of the church leaders in Sri Lanka to help me as a church leader in America, what do you see the greatest obstacle to spiritual growth in America? For these people, some of them had been coming back and forth. They had visited America. Some of them were church leaders and I asked them, tell me, what? Help me. And one of those church leaders and multiple agreed that one of the reasons there is a lack of spiritual maturity in the American church is because the American church has so 
many options. And when somebody runs into friction in the local church, instead of choosing to grow through that relational friction or through that mess in the community, they choose to pull up stakes and go somewhere else instead of allowing the church to grow, its leaders to grow, or themselves to grow because America has so many options. And one of them even went so far as to ask this question. They didn't state it as a fact because that would have been rude. So they asked the question. They said, is it not true in America that there are some people that will have an affair on one church's praise team and because they're talented, three weeks later, they'll be singing on somebody else's praise team? I didn't say that. They did. But man, it was a really good point. Because there is no accountability, there is no church discipline, there is no expectation. When we run into problems, we run instead of grow. The scripture says that when you love God, you're going to love His church. They had to grow. It forced them to grow up. You see, there is a bond that unites people when there are shared experiences between those people. When I look back over my life, the people that I'm connected to, they're all around shared experiences. I was the president of the senior high class of 1992 in Wynn, Arkansas. For some of you, you say, wow, he's just a pup. Others, you heard that and say, man, he's old. It depends on what spectrum you're in. But I was the president of the graduating class in 1992. We had about 200 people graduate that year. That's small for some of you, big for small towns. Where I was from, that was a large graduating class in a farm town. I have very little in common with those 200 people except we went to school together for several years and we graduate. And because of that, we stay in contact. We meet back together or unions. We have shared experiences together that unite us. Or I played football with a group of men for most of my life, from the seventh grade all the way till I graduated in the 12th grade. Many of them were black African Americans. And in my city, there was a railroad track. The whites lived on this side. The blacks lived on that side. It was a very prejudiced city. It was a typical southern city. And yet, when we bonded together on that football team, the shared experiences of working as a team for all those years together, two-a-days, gutting it out, struggling together, winning together, losing together, made our relationship stronger than the prejudice that existed in our town. Even when our parents did not want us to be friends with those people, our relationship was stronger than the prejudice of our parents because of the shared experiences experiences that we had together, gutting it out in practice, winning and losing together. Shared experiences will bond you together. Or what about the feelings that you had right after the trade centers were bombed 10 years ago? There was this sense of feeling in America that race didn't matter, denomination didn't matter, politics didn't matter. The things that normally divided us seemed less important than the things that unified us. And on the steps of our, our courthouses and in Washington, D.C., our congressmen and women and officials that are usually at each other's necks stood together and prayed and sang hymns. And they called upon God, even if it was just for a little while, there was a bond that joined us together as citizens of the United States of America and love of God and love of country. It was powerful while it lasted. And then if you go to other countries where believers are struggling, uh, they're, they're risking their lives to serve Jesus Christ. And you go meet them as I have on occasion on those trips and they would never come up to me and say I'm a Christian. That would cost them their lives. But if I'm introduced to one of them who's struggling, who's suffering for their faith, and they tell them I'm an American believer, and I learn they're a believer from whatever nation, there is an immediate bond. I may never know their name again, never say it again. I may never keep in contact with them again. But there is an eternal bond that I have with that believer that is stronger than blood bond because it is sealed by the blood of the Son of God. I have a shared experience with them as a follower of Jesus. 
Jesus Christ that is stronger than most earthly experiences I can have. There's a shared experiences that you have with other believers that is stronger than blood because it is sealed with the blood of the Son of God. And as the days get darker and our anticipation for the coming of the Lord grows stronger, our love for one another should grow as well. The things that divide us, our preferences, our styles, our methodologies, our petty dogmas should take a back seat to the things that unify us. The blessed hope of the coming of the Lord is a unifying hope. Let me give a message to moms and dads or those that have influence over small children. See that children that you have influence over, your kids, are hearing the Word of God in the house of God as the day approaches. Be faithful that you're to, to make sure because you being faithful to church sends two messages to your children. It sends the message that you love God. It sends the message that you love His people. It sends them the message that God is important and it sends the message that God's people are are important. But let me say this. So many times there are those that could get a star for perfect attendance on Sundays at the house of the Lord, but they go home and in their dinner tables and their conversations after church on Sunday or in their house, they badmouth gossip or slander somebody else that goes to church and they're undermining everything they've ever taught their kids by showing up at church on Sunday. Be of the house of God and guard your conversations when you leave. There should be a love growing in our hearts as we since the day of the Lord approaching. It is a unifying hope as we join the presence of God together knowing that He is coming again. Listen, we have to, we have to keep our hearts protected. Haley and I, we, we have made a decision in our home. As pastors, there are things, times you make bad decisions. There are times you do something wrong. And then there are times you don't do anything wrong at all, but you got caught in the lasers of somebody's ill intention. And, and so things get messy sometimes. And you, 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 know, you lose your naivety when you're, when, you're, when you're behind the scenes. And so Haley and I have made a decision that we're not going to talk about those things in front of our kids. Because I know pastors' kids today who have a call of God on their life who are not serving God in ministry today, and they're miserable because they're running from God. Um, many of them not even serving Him as a believer. Others serving Him as believer, but not serving in the ministry, and their lives are miserable. But the reason they won't go in the ministry is because it, their parents made them believe that all the church people were bad and that ministry was awful because of the conversations they had. We have chosen, in case God calls one of our children into ministry, and we believe He's doing that, that we are not going to sway them against the church. We want them to know God is good and so are His people. There are moments when relationships get difficult but we grow from those relationships and iron sharpens iron. Now let me say something else. Because this is not the KJV or the NIV, it's the BJV. I'm going to step out from behind the pulpit because I can't tell you this is anointed. This is just me. This is free and you're going to get this for free. Um, and don't blame God for this one. But let me, just, let me just say this. Your family and your friends do not pay you a compliment when they visit you on a weekend and expect you to miss church on Sunday. They are not paying you, your faith, or your commitment to God a compliment when they want to show up at your house on Sunday when they know you typically go to church, but they just assume you're going to skip because they're in town. Now, I'll go back to preaching. That was my... Uh, we'll go back to the real stuff. Okay, stabilizing hope. It is a unifying hope, but it's also a stabilizing hope. James... 5 verse 7. Be patient then brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop patiently waiting for autumn and spring rains. 
You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Listen to what he said. Be patient, stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Listen to what he says. In light of the Lord's coming, listen to what he says. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The King James Version of verse 8 says, Be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. That's where you get the, the, the wording, stabilizing hope. It is a unifying hope, but the King James says to establish your heart. Stabilize yourself in light of the coming of the Lord. Stabilize your relationship with God. Stabilize your relationship with each other. Stabilize yourself. Quit being fickle. Quit getting in and out. Quit jumping around. Stabilize yourself in your relationship with the Lord in light of His coming. The coming of the Lord is a unifying hope with the body. It is also a stabilizing hope. And this this stabilizing hope is a continuation of the conversation from the unifying hope. It It is a conversation about as we see the day approaching, we need to be patient with other believers in our relationship with them. Let the promise of the Lord stabilize you. Many believers aren't stable. Many believers are not consistent in their walk with God. Their Christian faith or church attendance is cyclical like their diets or their gym memberships. Listen, the gyms will start marketing around Christmas and gym attendance will swell come January and you won't be able to find a treadmill the first two weeks of January. But just go back in February and there'll be all these empty treadmills because the new wore off and everybody went back to their normal routine. That's the way it happens a lot of times in our habits, human nature, with diets or gym memberships. And there are so many people that treat faith that way, that treat God that way. Their interest shoots up in times of crisis or their interest shoots up when there's a moment of warmth or spiritual passion. But when the new wears off, they drop their spiritual fervor like bad habits. People do that with their faith. People do that with church. But James says the judge is standing at the door let the reality of the Lord's coming stabilize you quit riding the cycle quit riding the spiritual roller coaster grow up let there be some consistency he said be patient stand firm because the coming of the Lord is near he's telling us we've got to stop the junior high four-week fervor you say what's the junior high four-week fervor it's the kid that doesn't have a lot of spiritual interest they come to church because mom makes them and then they go to youth camp they get on fire and they come back for four weeks they're going to change the world and after the four weeks are over they're back to the same routine it's the junior high four-week fervor he's telling us we got to grow up We've got to get stabilized. We've got to get connected. We've, we've got to let our hearts mature. If you study the people of God in the Old Testament, their relationship with God is cyclical. If you look at our own adult lives, our passion for God is up and down. Maybe that's why there's a junior high four-week fervor. They're mimicking our own lives. But James says, in light of the coming of the Lord, stop that. Grow up and let the coming of God, the reality that the judge is standing at the door, establish your heart, causing you to be patient with one another and stand firm in your relationship. The coming of the Lord is a unifying hope. It is a stabilizing hope, but it is also a challenging hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 says, But brothers and sisters, when we are orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? 
Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Paul is saying he has reached these people through his ministry. He is the one that introduced these Thessalonians to Jesus. They have faith in Christ because he went to them and shared that love. And he says, at the return of Jesus, my joy, my hope, my reward, my crown that I'm going to lay at the feet of Jesus as, as an offering are the lives of you Thessalonians that I was able to lead to Christ. People that are going to be in heaven because I labored among you. You are my offering. You are my glory, my joy that I'm going to present to Jesus Christ on that day. When I thought about that, I thought, well, who am I going to present to Jesus Christ on that day? Would there be anybody I can lay as my crown, my joy, my hope that I've shared my faith with, that I've loved enough, that they've seen the love of God, that I've served enough, that they wanted what I had on the inside of me? Is there anybody that's going to be in heaven because of me? Is there anybody that's going to be in heaven because of you? When we gather at His coming, are we going to have an offering of the lives that have been touched by His grace and love to lay at His feet. Our busyness as a church, our busyness as individuals should be the business of souls. The coming of the Lord is a challenging hope. The reality that he's coming should there be an urgency in our heart that would challenge us to reach people. It challenges us to keep or discover a heart for evangelism and missions. It is a challenge to win souls. To become preoccupied with everything else but the most important priority would be as foolish as running through a house that has been on fire and us grab the television remote, a magazine, and a half-used candle while we leave a child in a cradle while the house is on fire, grabbing the menial and leaving the most important. And yet when a church or an individual believer gets their heart focused on the menial details of life and not on the most important priority of life, and that is touching other people's lives with the message of Jesus Christ, we have forsaken the most important for the menial. And like the house being on fire, there is an urgency, there is a short period of time, and we can't be sidetracked by the menial. We have to be focused by what matters most. The proverb writer said in Proverbs 11 and 30, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. The blessed hope, the coming of Jesus Christ, is a purifying hope, an encouraging hope, a comforting hope, a unifying hope, a stabilizing hope, and a challenging hope. A.W. Tozer As I bring this to a close, A.W. Tozer in his classic book, The Dwelling Place of God, describes how believers in decades past had lost their hopeful anticipation of the Lord. He, he, He wrote decades ago. And yet even in his own day, when he looked out in his own day and looked at the church, he saw the church having lost its anticipation of the Lord's return. And he made some very fitting statements. Even though he never expected them to fit today, they were supposed to fit then. Imagine how much more they fit today. Some very fitting statements for, that, for us, but even more sobering on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Listen to what A.W. Tozer said. Frankly, I do not know whether it is possible or not to recapture the spirit of anticipation that animated the early church and cheered the hearts of gospel Christians only a few decades ago. Certainly, scolding will not bring it back, nor arguing over prophecy, nor condemning those who do not agree with us. We may do all or any of these things without arousing the desired spirit of joyous expectation. That unifying, healing, 
purifying hope is for the childlike, the innocent-hearted, the unsophisticated. Now listen to the way he closes this statement in a very prophetic fashion. Possibly nothing short of a world catastrophe that will destroy every false trust and turn our eyes once more upon the man Christ Jesus will bring back the glorious hope to a generation that has lost it. May in our remembrance of this tragedy that happened a decade ago that temporarily united our nation, may it capture our hearts again today. May we understand that as the financial center of the universe collapsed 10 years ago and we built the gods back, may our false hopes be destroyed and our faith be turned to the blessed hope of the one who, the only one who can save us or help us. May our blessed hope be anchored in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place this morning. In just a moment, if, uh, if our prayer team for the 1130 service could help us this morning and just make themselves available. You're going to leave here today and my prayer is that you take some of these cards with you. Cards we're going to be praying over this week and that a novel exchange with somebody that you don't even know or a meaningful exchange with somebody you deeply care about um, will that this little card will be a tool that gets them back in to re-engage with church next Sunday. We're praying for you that that is the case. And maybe you want to let some of these people agree with you in prayer over that card this morning that it'll make a difference. And there may be hurting people you know, you care about, that if they could just let the love of God be the healing balm to their broken hearts. But they're so disengaged because of what they think church is or what it's been in the past that they won't even give God a chance maybe you need some prayer to go before you these people are willing to pray with you maybe your relationship with God is not where it needs to be maybe you've never known Jesus or maybe you've walked away from him and in light of his return you want to make sure that your heart is ready you want to just rededicate your life to God these people are here ready to do that they're they're willing to help you they can answer some questions none of them claim to be experts but they've all taken the same journey you're on right now Um, maybe a little different angle a little different path but they love you and care about you and want to pray with you maybe you need a miracle today in light of his coming you remember no matter how dark it gets he holds all things together and if you need a miracle in your life today financially or physically or wherever you might be they want to pray with you today they would be honored to join with you and believe for a miracle in your life that the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven and that the power of God would come into your situation he is the king of kings and he holds all things together let me say this if you're a guest this morning we would love to have the privilege of meeting you today Haley and I will be in the connection place and if you need prayer that's more important meeting with God than meeting with us so don't skip out on this But while I pray this morning a benediction over this congregation, please feel free to step out a little early, get your children, and meet us in the back for some refreshments. The most important thing is happening right here. We're going to keep the environment worshipful. And I really hope you walk out of here as a band of people unified around your love for each other in the light of His coming, stabilized in your relationships with God and men. Stop the fickleness unified, stabilized, and challenged in light of His return. 
Father, I pray today you'll bless these people. I pray that you'll keep them. That you'll make your face shine down upon them. That you'll be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction. And give them peace. And dear Lord, as we see the day approaching, may our love grow for each other. May our hope unify us. May our hope stabilize us. And may our hope challenges us today. In Jesus' name.